Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Pete Wright, and I'm here with Megan Strand. Hey there. And Dane Christensen. Hello. And, Glad uh, to be here. Are you? Yeah, because... I might not be able to make it for the interview. So I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad to be here for this part. We are the Naked Marketers, and uh, we're so glad you showed up uh, for the show today. We, the guest, uh, our guest on the show today is uh, uh, Munir Shita. Munir Shita is a bona fide, real life startup entrepreneur, and uh, in the mobile space, and he's working on stuff that. Uh, well, it's uh, I, we we did the interview, and I think it made Dane stroke out. It was so smart. There were so many smarts in there that Dane had a little stroke, a little aneurysm, and uh, he wasn't—he wasn't a part of it for much. I think. <laughs> I think the eyes rolled back. He said, "Hello, I'm glad that you've joined us on the show." And then Dane I, went science. You'll find that when you actually hear the interview. That, he you'll dark. find that you don't hear me. Yeah, I, that, I Dane, was thinking yeah. about that. The new Zach Galifianakis interview with uh, Bruce Willis. And yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't get that out of my head. All of a sudden, uh, what, what what was his name? Who did the uh, Who did the glasses with the beard and went on Dave Letterman to promote his movie like two years jo- ago? Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. That's sort of what it felt like. Like you, you got to play Joaquin Phoenix, the the silent, <laughs> the silent, drugged out part of the radio interview. I, I, did, I love I that we're to already. <laughs> I love I how we're humbled. two minutes in the show and already completely off track. Though. We are off track. And we should start with the news because there is some <laughs> awesome so news. It's a it. big news week this week. We have a lot of news. Where would you like to start, Megan? Um, well, let's talk about television for once. Sometimes uh, called the boob tube. Nobody Sometimes watches television anymore. Watches television Why would we ever want to talk about this? Actually, it turns out they do. Uh, Liar. A Pew Research poll released in September showed a slight increase as television as a news source. So what Pew did was ask respondents where they got their news yesterday. And they found 31 people, 31 percent, 31 people, 31 percent of people (laughs) read a newspaper, 34 percent listen to news on radio. Um, Online news continues to skyrocket to 34 percent, yet television news still dominates at 58 percent. Which is actually pretty amazing, and they also spend more time with television. So, um, can I just say that I've I've figured out why it's gone up? More people are going to the gym. No, I've figured this out. <laughs> I I had to do jury duty uh, a couple months ago, and one of the questions from from the judge as we started was, "Where do you get your news from? Like what periodicals?" And there were at least three men of say fifty plus age who cited Us Weekly as their source of news. They did not. They did. I was there in the room. I Us. believe they were rated the best tabloid publication recently. You know, that's, a, oh, no, 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 that's something fashion. I want to strive so, for. So my point is, if you say, like, there are, I, I guarantee there are people, uh, I, I would love to know what percent, but I guarantee there's a percentage of the American population who thinks uh, E-News and... Um, what, what's the whatever celebrity news is news that's, that's true. the news tmz right that's yeah but see that's online where what is what right, of TMZ those news online. shows about, you know the well e tmz news. i guess they have a show now tmz has a show but but yeah that's what i'm talking about like what other are you talking about you know entertainment tonight yeah that's what i'm talking da, 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 about yeah it's, it's da, 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 it does not there is a link to the full research survey and i did not read it all so i cannot tell you that but, uh, uh, okay. well i'm so, off track 
that maybe. So, well, it's it, this is the question that I had on this. I wonder if you changed the question a little bit and said, you know, what percentage of your overall media do you get uh, from television? I wonder if that number is still climbing slightly, as they indicate. Uh, because news, I can see people still going to the television for news. I mean, I can see people going to, uh, because we're acclimated to short stories, we're acclimated to, you know, this is where many generations exactly if this is what you turn on while you're cooking dinner this is what you turn on while you're getting ready in the morning Uh, but where you get most of your media or your more substantive media i wonder if it's still the case that that is television and i doubt that's true and was it a big news summer i mean we had the oil spill that that didn't keep people like glued to their tv i think megan brings up a big point which is that tv news is not just um watched at home but it's kind of ubiquitous i mean it's at the uh whatever, the convenience store, the gym. There are a lot of places that you yeah. can sort of watch TV, I guess, right? right. Yeah, well, News. you know what? They, they actually do break it down. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, C-SPAN, and then the evening news shows, ABC, NBC, CBS. And Entertainment Tonight didn't make it. It's actually not on there if it is. That's so crazy. Because that is news. That's the news that matters. Okay. But in other, speaking of news... Uh, speaking of news on advertising, uh, online advertising is up. Woohoo! That's a good thing, right? It's a really good thing. Why do we it's, care about that, Dane? Uh, well, because it, keep, it keeps Dane employed. That's right. <laughs> primarily, it's what I do for a living. Um, and it's, uh, in my opinion, it's a place that still makes sense. Uh, um, and it has a lot of room for growth. I, I I don't see any slowdown at all, so that's a good thing, obviously. But um, but I think we've also seen various figures throughout the year uh, about advertising being up in a lot of places. I think print um, is the only place that continues to sort of suffer. And we didn't bring figures uh, onto the show like that. But uh, I did talk to a creative director for um, an agency uh, uh, here in Salt Lake the other day, and and um, kind of you know just in general. You know, I, here's what here's here's what I think is is odd. Personally, I think when we talk about economic indicators, I think one of them should be is advertising spending up. Are companies investing in marketing? Because it appears that they are. Obviously, they are uh, in online uh, ad spending, and and well, I think we should break it down a little bit where, where that money's going because I think that's interesting. But um, I think it's a good sign in general. I think companies are, um, you know right now uh, investing in growth well it's interesting and the the you know we we have a couple of links that to post on uh, related specifically to this story the mashable story has a a nice uh, you know graph leading for the from the last 10 years and you can see this massive uh you know quarterly revenue growth through uh fourth quarter 2008 and then there was a slowdown there was a very clear slowdown first quarter 2009 through third quarter 2009 and then you know it's been on an upward trend Trend since and and that's which is um, right about when I launched my internet advertising business, which may very well <laughs> actually speak to that trend. Thank you, Dane, <laughs> on behalf of our global economy. Thank you for starting your business. I, uh, I, so I, I try to have an impact. You know, I I think it's a I think what we've seen you know historically is that it's a leading indicator, and who knows how long it's going to take. But uh, but you know, the more messages people get, they are inclined to reach into their wallets, and we'll see how. Uh, whether they're spending cash or credit, I think is is you know the thing to. That's an economic message, but and but <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think our habits have changed. We still buy when we are advertised to. 
that's what that's who we are. That's I know. Interesting. Sad. sad I want to advertise too. I I wanted to break this down just a bit, and and this is from the Mashable article. But um, uh, let's see. So businesses and individuals uh, spent approximately twelve billion in the first six months of 2010 in online advertising. So that's up eleven percent. That's a a big number, eleven percent up. Um, But to break it down, uh, the majority of that is going into search uh, advertising, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, I, I, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're, um, I guess what bothers me about it is that uh, I, I do a lot of search advertising, and, uh, and if, obviously the more money that goes into it, the, the more it costs. So um, that's, a tough, that's becoming a tougher place to compete, but there uh, are a lot of that. There are a lot of things I guess we won't get into in this show, a lot of different ways that uh, search is becoming smarter and uh, it's expanding certainly far beyond the quick little text ad uh, on a, you know, on a paid uh, search result. A lot of ways that you can uh, do remarketing and, and uh, Google's getting smarter with display advertising opportunities and, uh, you know, Facebook would, would um, advertising would fit under the search category. Uh, so that that's the lion's share. But the one that had the greatest growth within the category is digital video. That I thought was a really interesting little statistic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so Old too. Spice. Yeah. Old Spice. Yeah, Old Spice. Yeah, more, more was spent in video advertising from January to June than in any other half-year period before, an increase of 31% from the first half of 2009. Online uh, video promotion. Digital video. Interesting. Yeah. So we're an audio only show, so we're going to ignore that and move straight on to our next. Losers. Yes, that's right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What is our next story? We have, uh, we're going to, let's talk, should we talk about Facebook a little bit? We're going to talk a little bit about Facebook. Megan, did you want to tell us a little bit about Facebook? Well, I don't know if it's just me or I'm paying more attention to it, but they seem to be rolling out quite a lot of new features lately. Um, So this is a story about um, some additional features they've rolled out, very important features, including threaded comments and voting. So now when somebody posts something to their wall, instead of just this long list of comments where you add your comment to the end of all of the other comments, you can now... um, comment on a particular person's comment so it's a a thread that you can you can specify where your comment goes and even probably cooler is you can vote on other people's comments both up and down so why is that why is that cool do you i mean and i I guess i'm trying to get to is this a latent need to be able to say this your comment is stupid well, you know, this has been a controversy for, not a controversy, but this has been talked about for some time with Facebook. They've only offer, offered you the option to give a thumbs up to things versus giving a thumbs down to things. Um, so I don't know if this is their way of giving people a little bit of control over comment commenting on comments. Right. You still can't well, thumbs down the primary article, but maybe this is a, where they're throwing us a bone. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, to I, me, I like, I like being able to comment on a, you know, kind of a sub comment. I like being able to do that. You're able to do that on pretty much any blog that exists out there today. So why shouldn't you be able to do it on Facebook? Um, yeah, it's not a actually, new technology. Well, to be honest, when they rolled it out, I was like, oh, you can't do that already. It just, it just <laughs> didn't even occur to me that you couldn't do it. But you know, oh, I've, I knew you seconds. couldn't do it because well, I'm yeah. with you. There have been numerous times where I thought, 
Yeah, I'm now, not even going to post because it makes no sense to post at the end. Yeah. But you're, you're somebody just had some brilliant thing to say and you wanted to comment about it. Or, um, or you wanted or, to like it. You wanted to like their <laughs> You wanted to not comment about it. You wanted to like it. Exactly. I, here's my uh, um, take on it, uh, Megan and Pete. Um, here, here's what I think. I think that um, a lot of the internet economy is driven, now brace yourselves, uh, is driven by traffic. Wait, what? Site visits. What? Yeah, no, it's, I know. Yeah, the, the amount of traffic your site generates uh, can have an impact on your revenue. Oh, is that true, important? True story, true story. So here's what I think. I think uh, Facebook, you, you know, I'm sure that they, uh, oh, God, there's so many meetings at Facebook I wish I was a fly on the wall for, but, you know, because how long have they been debating this and, and, and what, did, what goes into the decision and, you know, what are the reasons they wouldn't do it and where have they tested it, I, I think would all be very interesting. But at the end of the day, um, in my opinion, uh, this sort of interactivity is just drives traffic and Facebook needs traffic. Uh, you wouldn't think with 500 million uh, members that they'd be terribly concerned. But the truth is, you know, I mean, people have varying degrees of, of uh, how much time they're going to spend on Facebook or you might go on a little, uh, you know, for Lent, you give up Facebook, for instance, something like that. But um, but if but if I but if I've you know people just have this this like I've commented I want to see if people liked it or 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 didn't like it and they go back to see and they go back and back and check it's sort of an embarrassing uh, trait of human uh, of the human race don't you think I'm mean, I'm a little embarrassed by that the 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 narcissism but uh, I I know that the the Salt Lake Tribune here in Salt Lake. Uh, launched a new website or new version of their site about four months ago and the prior version had this up thumbs up thumbs down for comments to the stories and when they launched the new site they had only the thumbs up they dropped the thumbs down and people clamored i mean for like a couple of weeks people like really missed that feature and and were really loud about it and now it's back would you give somebody a thumbs down or would you dislike a comment when would or when I should say when? when you know, I I prefer uh, the bury. Uh, Dig has a feature uh, in commenting where you can bury comments, and and I like that better because it says you know this this comment's downright offensive or totally unrelated. I'm going to bury that because and and it'll bury from my thread, and once it's gotten enough buries, it disappears. Uh, I don't know how voting works. Like if I if if a certain comment gets enough votes down. Does the comment disappear from the thread? If that's the well, case, then I would, you know, I guess I would find myself burying offensive or truly inane or non-related uh, comments. But in general, I don't. I, I, it has never occurred to me that this is a feature that's missing in my interaction with Facebook because either I like it or I don't. Yeah, I don't have any plans to start voting comments down, and the only place I can see it, uh, Megan, probably, I'm just, you know, trying to guess or whatever is, is you know, if you see somebody being insensitive or, you know what I mean, I mean, uh, that sort of thing, because in a, in a sort of the, the social, you know, uh, the virtual social space that, that you create with these sort of friends and acquaintances on Facebook, you know, there's a, you, you'd expect a certain amount of civility and you know probably not going to vote down a political comment i disagree with for instance that's where i was going with that but um there's another little feature to all this um that uh jumps out at me that there is a comment count and rating uh now so that 
you know, there, there's going to be, there, there's going to be sort of a numerical expression of, uh, how popular perhaps a comet is or you making know, a game out of wit i guess wow that's sure. alarming it's gonna yeah right i mean these are these are the little things that we sort of don't think much about but at the end of the day seem to be driving uh i don't know i mean driving a good portion of um like blog traffic for instance uh, i know huffington post um I've noticed, and I read a very interesting story about them uh, and and how important the commenting is to the news cycle because uh, it just it drives a lot of traffic. But I've noticed now that uh, articles on the Huffington Post often end with "What do you think? What's your take?" Right. Uh, you know, asking a question at the end of the news piece. Well, that's the nature of of building in that interactivity in the process. And on that front, I think it's a really good thing. I mean, you look at both from the you know, yes, it drives traffic to start a dialogue about a particular thing. Yes, it it allows the the sort of comment space to drive editorial decisions, which I I don't necessarily think is inappropriate. Uh, you know, if you're a publication like the Huffington Post and and are looking to give you know the kind of content you know and cover the kinds of stories on a limited staff and limited budget that your audience tends to read. Uh, but in the advertising space, you look at what Hulu has done, and, and they're certainly not alone, by allowing you to vote on the ads that you like to see. Uh, you know, as I'm watching a show and an ad comes up, it says, you know, is this ad relevant to you? Yes, this, it is, I think it's, or I no, think it isn't. so smart. And here's the thing. I, I have counted Hulu down from day one, and they've proven me wrong. Every, every single every, step. Every uh, me too. I am on the record as saying Hulu is just ridiculous. It's gonna, oh, I thought it, was, I thought it was a failed idea to begin with, yeah. um, and obviously not. Yeah. But here's what I think is brilliant about this. Um, in, in the advertising world, you know, there's so much uh, thought and effort that goes into basically – uh, the psychology of human behavior and trying to predict things and and trying to um, you know ascertain like a, a certain target audience's response and obviously focus groups and 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 really a whole lot of voodoo and, and witchcraft that goes into a, a lot of demographic targeting and, and ad creation. Well, here uh, is just the straightforward: give it a vote. Yeah, it's sort of like it takes. Um, it, it takes this big leap forward by by taking you know, many big leaps back. <laughs> yeah, just just this sort yeah. of raw, like, well, ah, why didn't someone else think of that? But well, it's and really it's real time. It's that real time measurement that is so so critical right well, now. Well, here's but here's what I think is critical. Pete, you had mentioned this before the show that that um, that you actually find yourself uh, watching the commercials that other people have voted positively for. So it's so obviously. So if you take ten commercials and two of them get a lot of bad votes, you know, a bummer, I guess, for that company because uh, chances are it's not really going to get watched. But if you're the company that got a lot of upvotes for your ad, um, it's interesting that now you're going to have people selecting to watch the ad, right? Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I don't, I don't skip that, those ads. That's where I think it's really, you know, that that's where I start to see like <clears throat> because you know, obviously the. Just a huge concern of advertisers is is their ad being seen today. It's not hard to get um, yeah. out there, I guess. I mean, it's not hard to put a whole bunch of money into banner advertising or or you know uh, to try to get a viral video going or you know that sort of thing. There's just all these. There's so many different platforms now that there weren't before uh, or, or weren't previously. You know, so many things available to get your message out, but 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 at the same time, so many ways to avoid them. 
like obviously DVRs is one, but to vote on uh, commercials. And I, I just I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the road, somebody, you know, like hangs their hat on how many upvotes they got on Hulu for a particular commercial or for their mm-hmm. brand, you know, rather than, you know, I mean, historically with advertising, there's kind of what the Clio awards and it's, it's really kind of peers, advertising peers voting on how awesome a commercial was that may have no relevance to how well it sold a product or how, popular you know the ad was or how many times it got seen but um but this is kind of i think adding a new layer of um uh i guess critique um you know to to how you get exposure you know this is an interesting uh, there's sort of an interesting parallel with what you know with as you say you know what companies media outlets are hanging their hats on the number of votes and then you have what what went on with the gap last week and has been it looks like resolved this week. Um are you are you up to speed with what has happened with the gap logo since since we talked about since it last we week? Ranted about it last we did week. rant. I don't want to rant about it very long, but there is a statement on from Marka Hansen, president of Gap Brand North America. Uh on the the gapinc.com blog. And uh, you know, I was uh, I was pretty fired up last week because they caved uh, based on, you know, comments from the internet. And this is a space where I don't necessarily think crowdsourcing is a is a way to uh you know, to get a, a logo updated. I didn't really care much for the new logo, but I didn't think it was terribly offensive as as many did. Uh, either way, I think it probably would have passed. Well, this statement they just caved and they switched back to the old logo and the statement I thought was interesting. Since we rolled out An updated version of our logo last week on our website, we've seen an outpouring of comments from customers and the online community in support of the iconic blue logo. Last week, we moved to address the feedback and began exploring how we could tap into into all of the passion. Ultimately, we learned just how much energy there is around our brand, to say the least. And all roads were leading us back to the blue box. We made the decision not to use the new logo on Gap.com any further. In the meantime, websites will go back to the iconic blue box logo. For the holiday, they'll turn it red. Uh, Quote, we've learned a lot in this process. And we are clear that we did not go about this in the right way. We recognize that we missed the opportunity to engage with the online community. This wasn't the right project at the right time for crowdsourcing. This that, wasn't the right uh, project at the right time for crowdsourcing. Whatever wow. they never that was such an afterthought when they were like, Oh yeah. let's get no, I'm back. so with Peter on this. They whimped lame. out, caved, and they it's dumb. They shouldn't have. Yep. Yep. And I, then the last line I think is pretty is pretty uh, telling. There may be a time to evolve our logo. But if and when that comes, oh, we'll handle it in a different way. There was a great, uh, a great blog post, and, and I'll, we should find it for the notes, um, of a designer who said, you know, I've never walked into a Gap store and had somebody offer me a free pair of pants uh, because they didn't like the pants I was wearing. Um, and so why, you know, why should you expect the crowd to be able to do something that professional designers really spend time studying and do? And, and you can't agree on design, so, you know, get over it. Uh, and move on, and they know, they yeah. just take, they caved in the absolute worst way, and I, I think I that's think really they did unfortunate. Too. I so. think they did too, and I and I'll just say real quick here, and I know Megan's dying to get off this topic immediately, but um, I think the original uh, supposedly iconic Gap logo reminds me of macrame, <laughs> like it should what? be hanging in a frame on your grandmother's wall. <laughs> no, it's totally that like is it's so random. Sentence. I know. I well, or where that came from? That's priceless. Wow. <laughs> You guys remember macrame, don't you? 
at is priceless. You guys probably still do macrame. <laughs> um, okay, so anyhow, here's the here's the next story. What is the next story? Should we? T- you know, Windows Phone launched uh, this weekend, and I think it's really mostly interesting only because. Um, they're spending a lot of money. Uh, have you seen the ads, the Windows Phone 7 well, ads? There's a number of interesting things here. But yeah, I, I thought the ads uh, were an odd approach, making fun of people who use smartphones to sell them a smartphone. That's right. Okay, the ads are get your face out of your phone. Um, you know, this is wonderfully me. You'll have this phone and you can look at it to do the things that you want to do quickly and easily, and then you'll be able to get back to living your life, and you won't be hit by a car or run a right grocery co- grocery card or something like that. I don't know if that's the message that gets me, but the ads are funny. I, I find them funny. I watch them. They're engaging. I don't turn the channel they're when they're Crispin on. They're a Crispin Porter product, aren't they? They are. They did a good job with those ads. They're clever. I don't know that that's the message I would want selling my phone, and it's particular because I, and this may surprise you, I like Windows Phone 7. I, uh, from what I have seen from the launch video and watching do, do the demo, do you demos, feel dirty when you say that? I mean, does it make you or, feel dirty? Or do I feel a whole new kind of clean? <laughs> I no, I uh, I I feel like the uh, the OS itself I think is innovative and interesting, and it's I think it to me is. it's much more intuitive it. than Android, and and I think that it will be a an interesting competitor for Android. It it does not make me want to switch. I'm very happy where I am, but but they're spending four hundred million dollars to get this out there, which as many have said, um, you know, four hundred million is the kind of coin that one spends when one realizes this is a make or break deal that Microsoft has lost yeah. a whole lot of space in the phone in the mobile space and and that they recognize this is this is where they need to be uh, and they put the operating system together and it looks like the hardware partners you know for that kind of, for this kind of a launch they released seven I think seven phones on three different hardware partners that you know should make for an interesting holiday race and they're they're hitting the market in the next three to four weeks. Um, you know, after this announcement. Um, so, it, you know, it'll be interesting. As a point of comparison, um, let's see here. I, we got the numbers for how much they spent on um, um, Windows XP. So Windows XP and, and Windows Vista. Combined? No. No, no, no. I, I, it wasn't com- combined. Oh, see, this is... Oh, I have way too Ouch. many windows open. <laughs> way too many windows open. Speaking of windows. Uh, tabs. They're all tabs, man. <laughs> they, um, spent, they spent well, $500 million on, yeah. um, on uh, XP and Windows 7 and uh, each. Okay. I can't imagine them spending that. No, Windows Seven was the one where they spent a uh, uh, a billion, close to a billion, they say. And okay. so, uh, and you know, so for for building mobile, but all the other products, including Xbox Live, they you know they launched or the Xbox they launched for for a half uh, you know five hundred million dollars, and this you know so this is a very they're spending some good money on uh, on getting the message out about Windows Phone Seven. This this should be. Pretty much everywhere, judging by um, you know by comparison, and and uh, and in addition to hardware partners and carriers who are also going to be footing the bill, I I I wonder if we're not going to get up into that eight hundred million uh, million dollar range to get these phones out the door. So uh, we we, we kind of hacked through that story a bit, and and uh, but I do that that's yeah. I mean, what jumps out at me is I would say first of all, thank you for spending that kind of money in this economy. 
that's great. Right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to see that kind of money being spent on in marketing. But um, the other thing is, like you said, uh, you know, this, this uh, kind of money represents basically, uh, I guess, make it or break it, right? Yeah. That's, that's sure, sure what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, and I think they recognize that. And I think they recognize how serious it is that they get this out and able to work on all partners. The interesting thing will be to see how much lock-in there is. I mean, if they... You know, if they, if they really, where do they fall on the locked in like Apple or completely open and chaotic like Android line? Um, you know, how much do they want their phones to work on all platforms? Or is it you just pretty much have to be on Windows and you have to be, you know, I, I just heard that the Zune uh, application will be released for the Mac at least uh, later this year. So, you you know, you will be able to synchronize your data to the Mac to a Windows phone. So that's... That's a change. It's a change in how Microsoft operates, for sure. So I think it's an interesting, it's a big story this week. If you haven't seen the launch video, check it out on Microsoft.com. I believe it's just slash phone. Um, and uh, and you can uh, catch up on a what was actually a pretty good launch, with the exception of Steve Ballmer, who seriously, people, what a face for radio that guy is. He's just, <laughs> just tough to watch stumble through. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stumble through the launch his his what section does that say of the about launch us, Peter? well, well <laughs> hey, hey present company absolutely accepted he uh you know the developers he had up there you know talk were fantastic they were savvy they knew their products they did a great job and then every time he stepped up on the stage it was like wah, wah, wah. <laughs> anyhow what's uh, what's next we have should, to talk about he should coach uh he should coach like high school sports absolutely let's do um I, I would love for Megan to uh, discuss the burrito. The new Chipotle campa- campaign. That's just my favorite. Do it. Is it? It is one of my favorites. So as you know, I spent a lot of time looking at cause marketing campaigns, but I think this particular Chipotle burrito campaign is just a fabulous marketing campaign that happens to incorporate a cause. So essentially what has happened is Chipotle and the founder of Chipotle, whose name is escaping me, Steve, somebody, Steve, somebody uh, has teamed up with Jamie Oliver, who is doing, has this huge food revolution movement to get, um, kids and families more educated about fresh foods and, and how to prepare them. So what you do this Halloween is you go into a Chipotle dressed as the nastiest, most horrible junk food you can imagine. And for $2, they'll give you one of their fabulous burritos. And essentially what they're doing is funneling that uh, $2 directly to Jamie Oliver's food revolution. So if you come in after 6 p.m. on Halloween dressed as a horrifying processed food, then you get one of their products and you get to make a donation. So the reason I think this is awesome is because it's creative, it's unique. They're using Halloween as this one-day event and I really think it has the potential to go viral. They have these really cute video of Steve and Jamie on the Chipotle site dressed as like a chicken nugget and dipping sauce. And I just think it could be funny. There are a lot of people who really get into the Halloween thing. And what better reason, you know, to get dressed up as something unique and creative for a good cause. Well, and and we some, also some we also know that part of the reason you like this is it has that cosplay feel to it. <laughs> And, Maybe that's know. the reason you like it. 
but I, I love it. I love it all around. I think it's a great campaign. So if, if it is a good so, campaign. It's smart. So moved, it's funny. Go into Chipotle on Halloween dressed as a horrifying processed food. I, I think that's really funny, summer. especially after, you know, Jamie Oliver's tearjerker of a show here. Um, what was it? Uh, food Revolution? Did you watch any yeah, of that the, show? That the, was just uh, a really awful, horrible experience to watch. American uh, school lunch. How we are failing our uh, we're failing our kids in the in the classroom now. If you go see Waiting for Superman, um, and in the kitchen, if you go see um, you know if you watch any of Food Revolution, of, yeah. yeah, or just visit your uh, your kid's school like I did last week and had. <laughs> Had uh, my son's birthday, he wanted me to go to uh, have school lunch with him at his school, and um, and it was not impressive. Mm. It was scary. That's really lots of sugar, lots of fries, fried things, fried things and sugar. Yep. yep. Yeah. All right. What do we? Do we have anything else to talk about in terms of the news? Are we? Did we get through it all, people? I hey, I we... wanted to just say something real quick here. Do it. Um, uh, <laughs> so. And this this is a world, uh, you know. There's a lot of viral marketing experiments that, uh, that work, and some that don't. Um, uh, but there was one in uh, Los Angeles the other day by a band called the Imperial Stars, and I just wanted to really briefly read what uh, the Los Angeles Times had to say about it. All right, if I could. yes. In the land where publicity stunts are daily fare, it's hard to grab the attention of Los Angeles residents. But messing with traffic as President Obama recently learned when he was in town, is a start. At a local music band that decided to park its truck diagonally across three lanes of southbound traffic on the 101 freeway, hop out and hold an impromptu concert, and you've got a stunt that, well, stopped traffic. Uh, these these uh, three gentlemen are now in jail, by the way. But uh, I wonder how that audience <laughs> compares. Would you rather play for an angry jailhouse or Los Angelinos wow. stuck in traffic? I wonder yeah. how trashed they were when they did that that just seems like a death wish first of all i mean how do you how do you even park a car across three lanes of traffic? That's a, it was a truck you see the picture there's a yeah. picture of it that or was, wasn't it a van it really a van. it was a big uh, big truck the, yeah one of the more ill-advised uh uh guerrilla marketing campaigns of all time is this one right here stopping traffic in los angeles you know what that says uh it says to me that there uh, there actually is such a thing as bad press <laughs> well, I, I'd never heard of the Imperial Stars before this, so I, I don't know. You know, maybe and they you probably will. never will again. Oh, they're horrible! Actually, you you, you got to watch the video. Terrible, terrible band. Uh, but anyway, I, I I get a real kick out of guerrilla marketing campaigns that uh, that don't go well. I think that's you know you're you're always walking a a fine line with guerrilla marketing. And I think on that note, uh, we should uh, should make this an exercise in contrasts and bring the smarts. Let's do it. This week, we are welcoming our special guest, Munir Shita, to the show. Munir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Munir, uh, you are a bona fide, real-life startup guy, right? That's what you do for a living. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I love you, the ability to work for big corporations. Well, it's so, it's so great uh, that we have you on the show, because as you know, we've been talking about over the last, uh, well, this show and last week, that this season is devoted really to talking about, uh, you know, startups and, and engagement marketing from the perspective of, uh, of the startup community and, and how you build engagement with people who 
you know, A, you haven't reached, but that's not necessarily novel, but B, people you actually have to educate that you even exist and that what your technology is. Um, now, I was, I say, lucky enough to be involved in a focus group of one of your new projects very recently, and you are working on some technology that is just out there. Uh, it's not even technology, it's philosophy. It's, it's, uh, uh, it is lifestyle stuff. You are working on, um, you know, on, on building the future. And in, in our pre-show, you said something that really stuck out to me, uh, that, uh, that you that you see your job is building the world that you want to live in. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you got to this place? As a kid, uh, my room was um, kind of like Star Trek. I had built all of these light switches, and you know you, everything was controlled by hand movements and stuff like that. And and so ever since I've been a kid, I've always I always been fascinated about the future. I always wanted to, to live in this future used on TV. Um, and I just think that, um, you know, development is fast these days, but it's not fast enough. As in, um, a little scared that uh, the future I want to live in is going to happen after I pass away. So, you know, I've kind of made it my goal to, to really build the world I want to live in. I wonder um, if you could give us just a brief overview of, I, I'm understanding your technology that of the future is based on ambient intelligence. So could you give a couple examples to our listeners um, about what types of technologies, you know, and what your personal vision is for what the world should be like in the future? Uh, yeah, so so ambient intelligence is, you know, it's not a technology, it's not a product, it's, it's an idea of how the world works. And, you know, in, in the future, and in this future, every device um, is intelligent and it's connected to the web and every application is intelligent. So, you know, it, it gives you um, some very futuristic um, examples out there, but a simple example is, you know, you have an alarm clock that you've set at 7 o'clock every morning to wake up so that you can be in your office at 8. Well, one day that alarm clock might wake you up at 6 because it, it realizes there's traffic out there and by um, the alarm clock might have talked to, you know, other alarm clocks, other cars on the road to figure out where everyone is heading and then realize that it's going to take me an extra hour to get to work. So, you know, it wakes me up an hour um, ahead of time. Um, so now you're starting to talk about, you know, an alarm clock that's intelligent and understands why you have to get up at 7. It just doesn't, you know, wake you up at 7 because it was programmed to wake you up at 7. Um, and because it understands why, it can actually be... Uh, flexible enough to, to change that time uh, based on stuff that's going out out in the world. See, now, here's why I get so excited about that. First of all, <laughs> because, well, you know me. I mean, if I could actually implant said alarm clock into, as a chip in my in my body someplace, that would, that be, would be horrible. That would be freakishly cool. Oh, uh, be but bad. but mostly because it's sort of you're sort of uh, sort of outsourcing some of these low level functions like alarm clock setting to systems that know better than I do. I don't know intuitively, you know, innately how traffic patterns are for a given morning, but there is a network out there that does the the issue that i have with this whole thing and based on the conversation man the conversation that was stimulated in this focus group is there are some really key issues with uh you know when you when it comes to uh being involved in launching such new products based on technology that fundamentally shakes people's worldview and how they interact with space and time and tech and tools and cars and clocks 
where do you even start, man? I mean, how do you even start, uh, you know, educating people and making them um, and and getting them willing to look at what you're doing when it shakes them uh, so fundamentally? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I asked myself that same question a couple of years ago when I really started on this, this project. Um, you know, I started on this project thinking, you know, I should make this more of a, a business challenge than a tech, uh, technology challenge. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, you can build futuristic technologies and, you know, the value of it is probably going to be exactly zero because it's too far out there. So the, the real challenge is figuring out how you can incorporate futuristic technology with the world today and and get people to buy into your story about where we're heading as, as, as a planet. What does that mean? What is the st- What is the story that you're looking to tell here? Well, you know, we're, we all agree, um, at least most people I talk to agree that, you know, 50 years from now, uh, we're going to live in, uh, in, in a world that probably to most people will be considered futuristic today. What everyone, and not that they don't agree, but what people can't describe is what will the world look like in 50 years from now. So that's the story. You know, you know, we believe that in the year, well, let's see, what's 50 years from now? That's 2060. So in the year 2060, the world will look like, you know, ABCD. And you're going to have to be able to, to tell that story, make a story about the world um, of tomorrow and make it in a way that people actually buy into it and are willing to participate in, in either using your technology, selling your technology or incorporating your technology into whatever they're doing. Um, and that's that's fairly tricky. Uh, you know, one thing I, I found out is, you know, what is futuristic? What is science fiction? And and the conclusion I came to when I was kind of started digging into what that meant is, you, something that's futuristic means that a person can't um, see a path from what they know about today to what you're talking about tomorrow. So. What, what we have decided to do, and it's really a core of our business strategy, is to build something that makes sense in the year 2010 uh, with, you know, this, this uh, futuristic technology really behind the scenes, uh, and then build a story around what we are deploying today um, that allows people to really see a path to what we're talking about tomorrow. And if you can actually build that path successfully, it, it doesn't become futuristic anymore. It becomes realistic. And it, and it becomes more of, of a matter of time on how to get there, maybe time and resources and, and you know, whatever is needed. But, but people can see a path and, and the futuristic category stamp goes away. That's that is a that's a fascinating statement and I think it's worth it's worth reflecting on just a little bit particularly in the terms of tactics, you know. I mean, if you're I I think you're you're probably spot on and I think that's how uh, you know, how marketing in general tends to to work. I mean, you're telling a story of something that is both, you know, I'm I'm building a relationship with you based on uh you know, what I am doing as a marketer and what my products are and um you know, but I'm I'm also telling a story of how it's going to integrate with your life. Well, in this case, I'm telling a story of uh, something that is integrating with your life in a level that you may have never seen before, but you're willing to accept because it's it's sort of what is the word close enough. 
it's it's in proximity uh, of of something that you can you can use. Here's an example that hits me in the news today. Right, ten years ago, if I had read the story about uh, Google having a robot, uh, you know, intelligent car driving thousands of miles through city streets. Uh, as was news released this week, uh, that may have shocked me. But today, it doesn't shock me so much. So when I get into a new Ford that has, you know, uh, has uh, enough intelligence in it to tell me where I can park and actually do the parking acti- parallel parking activity for me, because I've been sort of indoctrinated into that story of having a car that can drive, um, you know, I'm willing to accept the fact that I can let go of parallel parking. And that is a product now that it's a feature that I want in my next car, not something that I'm going to be afraid of. Is that sort of where you're going here? Am I making that up? No, no, that's, that's, that's exactly um, what our goal is. Um, you know, but, but more importantly is who do you tell the story to? You know, if you tell, if you tell the right story to the wrong person, you got nothing. So, so what we have spent a lot of time on this is really figuring out you know, what story do we build, how do we tell it, and to who do we tell it to? And, and uh, that's equally important as, as really making a path from, from something that people understand exists today to what you want to want to exist tomorrow. I'm just, I'm incredibly curious because in addition to Peter's example about Google and, and intelligent cars, um, it makes me think of things like Twitter, you know, things that people didn't know they needed um, and, and I'm getting this storytelling and this path from current to future, but I'm curious to know, you know, you're talking about telling the right story to the wrong person. I'm curious to know if you've been able to systematize or have some sort of structure around how you get that information from the right people about what is currently within their grasp of comprehension or adoption. Have you been able to figure that out at all? Um, do you have any um, questions you're asking or structure you're using to try to pull that information out? Well, you know, we're the, the way we're doing it is um, that our target is actually not consumers. Our target is actually the people in the ambient intelligence research community. Um, and it's pretty easy to, to figure out, you know, what they know today, what they accept today, because, you know, it's, ambient intelligence today is, is a pure research topic. No one has actually managed to, to develop a technology that's uh, de- deployable. With them, it, it's a, you can have, you, know, you can talk about something that's going to be real in 2150, and, and it's plausible to them. Um, but if, if you look at our first, product that, that we're releasing and, and Pete, you, you tried it out right there there's really no rocket science behind it i mean it's you're watching a cooking show on tv you go to the store you pick up the ingredients and you come home and make it and it was designed to not be too far out there because average people um who do not you know have a special interest in technology uh, we'll have a harder time accepting a technology if it's too futuristic. If, if it if it changes their life too much, even if it's for the better, but if the change is too big, uh, people tend to kind of push it away. So, so you'll you'll see us have different stories to different people. For the average consumer, it's all about just make it a little bit better than how it is today. 
don't, you know, don't make it too intelligent, or at least don't make it appear too intelligent, because there's too many uh, negative stories about, you know, intelligent technology. Just make it appear as, uh, you know, this is what you do today, and with our technology, you can keep doing the same thing, but it'll be a little better, a little faster. You know, you say that your uh, your product is not necessarily targeted to the consumer audience. It's it's you know targeted to the the research uh, you know research market to actually drive um, you know drive implementation. And yet, at some point, the consumer has to be involved. The consumer has to accept what you're doing in order to even have people interested in implementing it into their in into their system. It all sort of ends in you know how we're able to um, incorporate. Uh, this new technology into our lives. You know, so the question is, you know, how do you do that? We've talked a lot about the story that you're trying to tell. And you also mentioned, you know, we have to find the right people uh, and tell them at the right time. So how do, and I think Megan got to this question, how do you actually find the right people? Well, um, you know, to answer from, from our perspective, ambient intelligence is projected to have a greater impact on our lives than the web did. So, if that's true, 50 years from now, we'll think that the, the, the life in 2010 would be Stone Age. Now, if, 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 if we make that an assumption for us, um, how do you change the world that drastically? Well, you need market power and you need credibility, and that's something we don't have. Mm-hmm. No startup in the world has that. So, you know, in a way, you're going to have to, like, define your own target, you know, who you're going to go after. and and to us, that is, um, our first priority is acquiring the market power and the credibility that's needed to really inflict global change. Does that mean what, you want to be bought? Yes. So you, so as part of your business strategy that you brought up earlier, you know, and I'm I'm looking at this from a tactical sort of you know startup philosophy. In order for you to really take it to the next level on a technology like this, you really have to be purchased. Well, we have to be purchased or, or we have to have a, a pretty deep partnership with someone. Uh, and I, I just don't see a, a path to um, changing the world um, unless you can acquire market power and credibility. Simple as that. Yeah. Uh, but so our acquisition strategy is a little different. You know, in, in most startups, you want to get bought so that you can, you know, retire to Bahamas and have a drink at the beach. Uh, with, with us, it's, it's really, you know, that is the, the next step to inflict change in the global economy. There's a lot of there's a lot of research going on in, in, in ambient intelligence, and you know, you know, if you want people to listen to you, uh, you have to stand out, uh, and that's why we have a consumer approach. That's why we're deploying technology um, because we'll be the only one in the world right now that has ambient intelligence deployed um, and being used. Well, hopefully being used by consumers, um, and and that that by itself will hopefully give you enough, you know, initial credibility that people will actually start listening. And you know, the first you know, the first trick in storytelling is to get people to listen. Mm-hmm. So, I know that Peter was part of a focus group that you've done recently. Is that, what are the tools that you use to kind of test some of your ideas? Is it kind of these in-person qualitative things, or are there other methods that you're using to 
see how your products are, are resonating with consumers and and I don't even know if you're the, to the stage of talking about messaging. Um, yeah, so so we actually tested out quite a bit um, from from product testing to um, to actually technology testing and and uh, you know it was some interesting feedback <laughs> uh, from from product testing. You know, I've been looking through the, you know the feedback we got, and I kind of exclude Pete's feedback because everything seems to go very smooth with with Pete and process. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we we did a lot of product testing. We were trying to figure out how to make things smoother. The 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 task was you know you're going to watch a cooking show on TV, and the goal was to make the dish um, later on, as in. You have to go to the store, pick up the groceries, and then come home, pull up the recipe. Uh, and in, in normal, a normal process would mean, uh, you know, write down the, the ingredients list and the recipe. Uh, I noticed some of uh, our participants um, used uh, some iPhone applications to, to type, uh, I think, pictures of the screen. Right, right. Um, but with, the, with our technology, um, you just sent a text message and you sent a text message to a certain number and in return we automatically create an account for you and we we save your uh, save the recipe into your account and we place the ingredients into your shopping list so when you went to the store uh, you sent another text message and in return you got your shopping list up on the screen basically a link to, to a web page and the phone automatically understands where you are and it automatically adds file numbers uh, to each ingredient so that you can easily go around and pick them up. Um, and then you come home and your your recipe is stored on your account so that you can easily find it. You don't have to go into you know foodnetwork.com and search for their recipes or anything like that. It's, it's stored on your account and it's, it's really easy to find. So it wasn't, you know, as I said earlier, it wasn't rocket science to use this stuff. Um, but at the same time, we, we also did a lot of technology testing um, to, to help us really carve out the story that we can uh, tell people in, in the research community. And um, one of the things that we tested out, which I don't think any participants uh, were aware of, is that our apps, uh, in this case the shopping list app, was probably what I would call below average quality. Um, and it was done on purpose uh, because one of our um, theories was that in a world where technology is trying to help you to get from point A to point B, it's not so much about the applications that you're using, if they're fancy, nice looking, if they're flashy or whatever it is. Um, it's about the results and experience. Um, and looking at all the feedbacks, no one actually, you know, there, there was some there was some feedback about it was hard to use or, um, you know, they, they can figure out how to get the aisle numbers up on the screen. But as far as the, the, the shopping list as a product, there was really no feedback um, saying that this is the worst shopping list I ever used. And trust me, it was the worst shopping list. <laughs> um, so, and, and that, just that one point uh, is such a big deal to us. That, that no one complained. Let's put it this way. This is not a shopping list anyone would have downloaded from the App Store. If you did download it, you probably deleted it within a day. Uh, but because it was in the process, and, and you tried to help you throughout the process, 
they didn't seem like anyone really complained about it. And that is a big selling point when it comes to ambient intelligence. And that's, that's going to be uh, part of our core story that we're going to go out and tell the, the research community that, you know, there's some cool things you can do with ambient intelligence without being a super programmer. That's a that's a really interesting point. And av- after having gone through the series of exercises, I can attest to the fact that the app itself seemed ancillary to the process. Like that wasn't what what I was. Uh, I didn't I didn't give it a second thought. Uh, and I'm usually pretty sensitive to you know design, uh, but I didn't give it a second thought because of the integration of the actual shopping list and the recipe and that stuff was, was there. It was really more about the text than the design. Well, and that's probably a question of nice to have versus need to have, right. you know, what's the threshold between functional and pretty, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how much above and beyond do you have to go to make it something that people will use and adopt? That's a whole new question. That's a whole new question. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, Munir, what is the next step? I know you've you've tested this shopping, uh, the shopping list uh, app, but what is the next step for, is this an app you're going to actually work on taking to the market or is it really just a proof of concept for you to get the the platform done? Uh, No, this is, uh, we're going to take this to the market. We have uh, uh, a little more development to do. Um, You know, we're going to add a a few uh, things to this, these apps. Uh, For example, Hopefully, within a couple of months after we launch, you'll actually be able to use your remote control on certain TVs instead of sending a text message. Mm. So you'll actually be able to press a button on the remote control, and up on the screen will, you know, it will pop up with the recipe and the ingredients list and the ability to add to your shopping list, or maybe tell you about the, the nutritional information about it, whatever it is. Um, it will also going to add. Uh, a function for Android phones and Nokia phones where it um, it runs on the phone at any given time so you don't actually have to send a text message and once you get close to a store um, it'll automatically pop up with a button on, on the idle screen saying, you know, press there to open up the shopping list. Oh, see, now that's ambient intelligence right there. That's that sort of awareness in its sort of purest form where yeah. I don't have to do anything just no. look at my phone and it's it's there for me it it's anticipated my need yes yeah so so that um that that is actually there for nokia and and, and the android phones uh our installation process isn't perfect yet that's why it wasn't part of the focus group um but uh that's kind of what we're hoping to to really deploy and and um, in the next few weeks we'll start uh, Targeting, uh, you know, connecting with uh, local TV stations here in Portland and in, in Seattle area and in Atlanta. Well, that is the big. That becomes the big challenge, doesn't it? I mean, when you're when you're building the world you want to live in, it takes a whole lot of partners to to get there, and yeah. uh, uh, that that you have to integrate with old media to get this kind of uh, new smarts built into your phones is a uh, it's a worthy challenge. Uh, and uh, good luck to you, uh, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we sure appreciate you coming on the show and talking about uh, the future world that you want to live in. Well, thank you for having me. Where uh, where can people learn more if they want to learn more about uh, what you are up to? Uh, you can go to chimerasystems.com, K-I-M-E-R-A, and systems with an S at the end, .com. And um, you can read more about what we do and ambient intelligence on our site. 
Excellent, excellent. Uh, Munir Shita from Chimera Systems. Munir, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, we thank Munir for sharing his smarts uh, with us. We, I think, uh, I think we we just witnessed um, we just witnessed something that we will we will still probably be talking about in uh, twenty in twenty fifty in twenty because we we may not even by then actually understand it. I think Dane was time traveling. What happened to you, Dane? Yeah, no, I'm sorry I couldn't make it for that interview. Um, <laughs> Do you have a meeting with your accountant? Were you, were you working on that novel? That novel you've been working on? Ooh, I need to. Yeah. Yeah. Got a good idea for a novel. Um, so there. Yeah, I wasn't. Sorry. Couldn't be there. <laughs> uh, good interview. And I think, uh, and uh, really interesting technology. So it'll be fun to see how they, how they evolve over the coming months and years. We have, you know, we were talking about tools. Uh, and, and I think, uh, did we just come up short on tools? Or are we really, do we want to talk about Dropbox again? You asked a question about backing up, right? What was your question? <laughs> Wow, that was a that was a powerful introduction. Kind of an um, anemic introduction <laughs> to a tool I, that I am really I'm hyper passionate about. Yeah, well, I'm having this this problem where I I used to use iDisk pretty consistently and felt like great. You know, my my files are backed up. Then I started exclusively, um, you know, putting my files on iDisk and not having a desktop and an iDisk version of both, and because it just it's you know, redundancies, uh, uh, concern me, uh, I, you know, because you're going to miss something. I feel like, Oh, so anyway, I, and then, you know, you have these instances of iDisk just not syncing correctly and it doesn't work or, or one, one of your machines that you're hooked up with has somehow thrown the whole thing off. And I don't know, just funky things happen. Um, and so I stopped using it. And the other day I was like, gosh, you know, I really need to get, I need to get a good cloud uh, system that, uh, you know, that all of my current important files are, uh, you know, I I guess on on a sort of a cloud solution that I can, gives me a little confidence, right? I mean, there's, um, but there's some other things that I'm also not doing that you're doing with your cloud solution, Pete. So I thought it might be interesting to talk about that because I still am struggling with the whole iDisk issue because I'm paying, you know, the fee for it, figure out how to use it. But um, I don't know. Well, I'm not saddled with that uh, with that need. I I have been really disappointed overall with Apple's uh, with the iDisk tool. It's it's sketchy. It's inconsistent. It fails on certain file types, and it's just downright annoying. Uh, in contrast, I you know we've talked about Dropbox before. I am a massive fanatic uh, about Dropbox and uh, and what it does. You know, it's it's similar to iDisk. Uh, Though it doesn't really mount a virtual disk on, in, in your f- system, it just installs a little folder called the Dropbox folder in your in your uh, you know your root kind of my documents directory, and that folder is synced with the Dropbox service. So anything you put in that folder is is automatically synced up to the Dropbox service. And so I have you know every single one of my working documents, my my working folders and files and client documents, they're all syncing into this Dropbox folder. And these are the working copies, right? They're synced onto my computer. When I'm offline, I have them. When I'm online, they're in sync with the service. Uh, When that really came in handy, we've talked about that part before, uh, but when that came handy, it really came 
came through in spades to me just a couple of weeks ago. I have a I have a shared folder inside of my Dropbox folder for one of my clients, and it is a it's a big client. I mean, it's like gigs of data uh, that we have in there, from video files to I mean, it's just a lot of data. And uh, they hired a new employee, a new director of marketing, who is a, a sharp guy and was having some trouble with his computer, and he actually took that directory that was synced with him and dragged it into his own you know, my, my documents out of the Dropbox, which then removed it from everybody else uh, who was using it. Well, that, of course, is, you know, where the system fails is in, you know, human error when humans don't understand how technology works. But and so all those files were deleted and I panicked. I panicked big time. And um, I but I went up to the Dropbox service on the web and I logged into my account and I went and said, show me all my files. And there's a little button that says show deleted files. And sure enough, Dropbox had maintained a list of all those files that had been deleted. And I, I clicked restore that directory and every one of those files came back and it was in exactly the perfect condition, the last snapshot uh, before anybody, uh, the last time anybody had used them. So it, it really, it saved our, our collective bacon and, uh, and, you know, now we totally understand how that works. Um, did you, did you give him a tutorial after that? I actually, the, co- the other people in the company who uh, also are shared went into a, a white hot rage and, and gave him nearly throttled him out of the company because it was their stuff too. And and you know when a team is working in a folder, oh, there's an understanding so that these things are synced. And and really somebody has to be kind of the the main arbiter of when files get deleted when you're working in a shared space. Most of these of the time, you know, I don't have a, a shared folder for just my general working documents. I don't share those with anybody. They're they're private stuff. But uh, in this case, it has just been. I, I mean, we were talking about this with with in the interview that there are technologies that didn't exist 10 years ago that we build our business on today. And Dropbox is one of those for a hundred bucks a year. I get 50 gigs of this cloud storage that I don't ever have to worry about. I don't think about it because it's just there. And I literally run my business on it. Uh, and so it's, I, I couldn't sing the praises of Dropbox enough. Well, and I, I will say um, to your point about user error, I also had a client, it, this was not nearly as dramatic as yours, but I also had a client that, I, you know, sent the invitation to share this folder and thought I explained it well and found out that he was going to the Dropbox website to access the folder yeah. versus his own computer. That's so enough to really do, piss people off. If you have to do that, yeah, if you think that's yeah. how it works. So yeah. you do have to, you know, maybe over explain it sometimes right. depending on who you're working with. But it is a fabulous tool. Thank you, Peter. Well, you're very welcome. For raising the question. It is an outstanding question, Dan. You're I so wish welcome. You luck. I wish you uh, good luck and Godspeed, my friend, in solving yeah. your iDisk problem. You should you should take care of that. Well, I feel like I contributed something today by asking that question. You did. I'm just glad your health is okay. I was worried about you for a while. Uh, on that note, Dane, where would people find you if they wanted to learn more about uh, all the wonderful things you're up to? I'm. I think I might be going off the grid this week. What does that even mean? <laughs> Um, You're going underground? You know what? I'm not going to. I, I am still at strike10media.com. Uh, yeah, I was just going to, you know, I just shut it all down, take a little experiment, and, and uh, go off the grid. But uh, but you think that would be too earth-shattering? Actually, I miss just you a lot on Twitter. That, I know. See? <laughs> I don't want my... You don't want your people to... Yeah, I was going to call them uh, Twitter fans, <laughs> but i just not sure yeah. that would be funny to anybody but me. Megan, where can people find you? 
I'm at Megan Strand on Twitter and at encouraged.com, which is spelled with an I and. Is that I and? Or I and? <laughs> I and. Spelled with an I Usually and an N. I tried to spell N, the whole thing, but then I thought C, maybe I should shorten it now. <laughs> and then an O. This, this ambient intelligence thing, I think, has ruined all I of our I think we points. all need help with it. I think we need we need it to be a little bit more proactive. I am Pete Wright on the Twitter and at fifthandmain.com, but you can learn more about the show at thenakedmarketers.com. Follow us on or like us. Like us, but don't vote us down don't on us down, uh, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash NKD marketers on the Twitter at Naked Markets. And uh, make sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes. That's the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode of Naked Marketing Goodness. Uh, on behalf of Dane and Megan, my name is Pete Wright. Thanks so much for joining us this week for another episode of the Naked Marketers. Naked Marketers.